greatest predictor of well-being for young people in 2022 is not being wealthy, it's not being good-looking, it's not having more good things happen to you than bad. It's actually about having a rich repertoire of friends. And I think the ability to obtain, maintain and retain friendships is a skill that needs to be learned. And I'm not sure that you're necessarily going to learn that if everyone's got their faces um, in their phones. Welcome to the New Flesh podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Allpike and joining me once again is the highly educated Jonathan Astro. Oh, well, you know, just like no need, no need for that. So it's not real subjects. Okay. <laughs> we talk to people who like are properly educated. Mm. So I think I, I know about films and who cares about films. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we are here uh, to talk about mobile phones and technology and how they relate specifically to young people and how they learn. Great. Well, you know, let's um, it, look, I, I won't put all my cards on the table, but yeah, I, it's dreadful. So we need to talk about it with Michael Carr Gregg. Let's do it. Michael Carr Gregg is a psychologist, published author and mental health advocate. His books include The Princess Bitchface Syndrome, The Prince Boofhead Syndrome, Surviving Adolescence, Surviving Year 12, Starting Secondary School, Strictly Parenting, Beyond Cyberbullying, Real Wild Child, and many more. He's here today to take a deep dive into technology as it relates to children and some other things. Michael, welcome to The New Flesh. Thank you very much. Now, both both John and I have young children, so uh, we have a very keen interest in what schooling will look like for our kids when they get there. And uh, we're lucky that our kids missed the COVID school closures, and that's where I think we should begin the discussion. Uh, the, the COVID lockdowns forced everyone online, including children, the computer screen or, or, or device was the, the sole connection point for everyone. Uh, how has COVID affected the way young people use technology? I think for a prolonged period of time, um, many young people uh, who had formerly had rules around screen time, uh, those rules were lifted because their carers realised that the only way they could socialise was through games and through social media. And therefore, we saw a prolonged immersion in uh, social media and I think that has caused lots of different problems, uh, anxiety, depression. Um, I think there was a spike in recorded complaints to the Office of eSafety on cyberbullying, um, none of which, again, surprises me at all. And um, it was a bit of a disaster, to be honest with you. Everyone seemed to have uh, to embrace suddenly and really quickly embrace uh, online learning. Uh, uh, and but what what does the research say about the effectiveness of online learning? Well, it varies. Um, there were some kids who absolutely thrived on online learning, loved every second of it, and were most regretful that we had to go back to school. Uh, for others, um, it was just a complete turn off. Um, they literally turned their cameras off and played games for certainly in Melbourne for the 264 days that um, we had lockdown and they learned nothing. So mixed results. Before we leave COVID, because uh, we have other things to talk about, do, do you think that, that that there is going to be a bit of a lost generation there? I think this is a this COVID lockdown was a generation defining moment. Um, I think that not only are they two years behind academically, I think psychologically many have regressed psychologically, and um, I think the recovery will be a long time coming. Mm. Well, perhaps we should set the table a bit. Uh, you co-authored a report into the non-educational use of mobile devices in New South Wales schools, which we've linked to in our show notes. Uh, uh, firstly, who and what prompted this review? The Minister of Education uh, rang me up um, one day and asked me if I would uh, lead the review, who I wanted to have on it, and it was entirely his uh, idea and um, good on him for opening the debate. Mm, that's fantastic to see see that sort of initiative. Um, 
John and I, we've worked in education in the past, mostly tertiary education, and we've noticed that students can't go more than about 10 minutes or so without looking at their phones. Uh, and, and I'd like to know what the psychology is behind this. Uh, is it eliminating people's ability to do deep work, by which I mean, say, write a novel or an essay or learn how to play the piano or, or say, the ability to solve complex problems? I don't think you can generalise. I think the effect is highly individual and um, I think global statements are unhelpful. Unfortunately, that's the way government work um, and the lived experience of many schools at the moment is that phones are in the classroom, are a source of distraction. Um, I've had teachers say to me that they were sick of teaching from the back of the class to make sure that their students were paying attention and um, that there was no socialising going on at recess or lunchtime because people had their faces in their phones and that this was impacting on their social skills, was impacting on their ability to learn and um, something had to be done about it. So obviously there are people saying that there must be people saying that. Uh, well, I'll just go, I'll go straight to it because I I, I I would like to know the best arguments for why a child or teenager needs a smartphone at school. There are some instances, so I'm told by the educators, where having a phone in your classroom is a learning device. And you will be familiar with cahoots and those type of programs where kids can use their mobile phone as buttons in a quiz. Um, it's easier for some young people to just snap a QR code and download a whole lot of information. Uh, and it's also apparently very useful for them to take pictures off a, a whiteboard or a PowerPoint presentation. Now I'm um, a little bit limited here since I don't have a degree in teaching um, but I'm going on the basis of what teachers have told me. My puzzlement around that is surely you can do all of those things with a, a tablet device or a laptop, number one. Uh, number two, uh, wouldn't it be better for the phones to be brought in then on those occasions that phones are required, but to have a blanket ban otherwise seems to me to be a very sensible solution because that way they're not going to be distracted by their phones. But using technology for, for every single lesson, or, or maybe not every single lesson, but for a lot of different lessons, it may not support all learning styles. You know, there, there are a number of different learning styles. You've got kinesthetic learners, you've got visual learners, um, you've got auditory learners and reading and writing learners. Um, it, is it possible that technology could be disadvantaging some learners? I think that I'll, I'll leave that debate to uh, the educationalists. Um, clearly, some people hold that view. Uh, I'm interested in primarily the well-being of students, and I don't think you get learning without well-being. And I don't think there is any evidence that a young person needs a phone in the classroom for their well-being. Mm. What about this idea that comes up? Surely one of the main uh, objections to this from would from parents would be, oh, I need to, to, to keep in touch with my child. That's why we have a school office and um, you can contact your child before or after school when they have their mobile phone on them. But between 9 till 3.30, um, the, again, lived experience of those schools who've got these bans in place. And I'll remind you now that that's most of the state schools in Victoria, Tasmania and West Australia. No child's been disadvantaged by their parent not being able to reach them. And I think that in terms of their psychological emancipation from adult carers, it's probably a good thing. I've heard you speak about this idea of, of islands of time. Would you able to, to, to expand upon this? Yeah, I think it's a really good idea for young people to have some staring out of the window time to reflect, to start 
perhaps synthesizing some of the ideas um, that they've been exposed to. And I just feel that the mobile phone interferes with that. I also think the greatest predictor of well-being for young people in 2022 is not being wealthy, it's not being good-looking, it's not having more good things happen to you than bad. It's actually about having a rich repertoire of friends. And I think the ability to obtain, maintain and retain friendships is a skill that needs to be learned. And I'm not sure that you're necessarily going to learn that if everyone's got their faces um, in their phones. Well, I'm, I'm interested to know uh, a little bit about, say, say, younger children, like children under five. Um, I think the detrimental impacts of screen time on, say, language, social play, physical health and creativity are, are pretty well documented in children uh, under five. Uh, we know that screen time can be addictive and has neurological effects. Do you suggest eliminating screen time for kids five and under? I think that it depends on your definition of screen time. Uh, again, it's a more nuanced question because if your screen time is, for example, spending half an hour talking with your grandparents um, from halfway across the road, of the world, I would see that as a very useful thing. If it's a um, piece of screen time, which is a drawing tutorial on YouTube, also very, very useful. So I think it really depends on the content and particularly the quality of that content. And more importantly, whether or not this screen time is interfering with the developmental tasks of childhood. Well, if, if kids were using their devices, say, to code or, 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 or to make apps or to learn about computer science or looking up equations and factoids about, I don't know, ancient Rome, uh, that would be one thing. But the majority of kids play games, they watch endless YouTube videos and they muck around on social media. I, I find this idea that kids are using devices to do meaningful work, a little bit insulting because we were given PCs in the 90s and all we did with them was play June and Quake and multiplayer. Oh, yeah. Isn't it just, isn't it just human nature that people gravitate towards instant gratification, the big dopamine hit? Well, for, for teenagers, as a um, child and adolescent psychologist, absolutely nothing lights up the brain quicker than um, the prospect of A, being social online with your friends, that's going to give you a big dopamine hit, um, and getting those likes and having your world kind of distorted by social media because reality is lost on social media. Uh, ideas about body image, about morality, I think they're all um, not necessarily served by being on social media for a long period of time. Mm. I'm, I'm not a fan of any of them. I think the companies by and large have displayed that they have the ethics of a cash register. And if you're not the, you know, if you're not benefiting from social media, then you're the product that's being sold. So mm. I think we need, I think the challenge for you educators is to give kids the skills, knowledge and strategies to use social media in a safe, smart and responsible way. And I don't think that parents and educators have succeeded in that yet. I think you talk about di digital literacy in the, in the, in the report, but how, how much do kids, you've sort of already touched on it, but how much do they really understand about what's being done to them? Because if I asked, I'm sure if I asked, uh, you know, teachers and parents informally that I'd hear this word digital natives and all they know and the kid, and I've read some of the kids comments and, you know, I'll, some of them sound like school prefects and others sound like kids. In other words, I'm not that impressed but by what they have to say. So um, but do, do they know, and you just outlined some of it, do they know that they are the product for social media companies, for example, or that Facebook conducted a purposeful experiment to make their users sad or or that um, app features such as, you know, infinite scroll and all the colours, the why is that bright red always the same bright red for updates, you know, like they're designed with the same goals as cigarette packaging and slot machines to get basically to get you hooked and fearful forever until you lose everything. I'm, I want to know, 
do they know any of this? And why can't we be honest with them and, and, and look, at them, look them in the eye and say, you guys have been played? I think there are a couple of documentaries that I've seen um, which have basically been done by the social conscience of Silicon Valley, um, which is very small, but it's there, um, which have sought to explain this primarily to parents. There are a few uh, shows that I've seen, one by a group called IndieFlix, which really takes a very sophisticated view and says to the young people, look, you are the product, this is what's happening to you. So I think this um, consciousness raising is happening. Is it happening enough? No. Is it happening in Australia? Not to the extent that I would like. I think part of the challenge would be for and I've made the recommendation in the report that all schools require students to sit the eSmart digital licence and the, or an equivalent, and I think that needs to be beefed up. At the moment, that's for lower, lower primary, upper primary and lower secondary, um, and it's an attempt to try and give young people the skills and the knowledge and the strategies to use social media in a much more sophisticated manner. I'd love to see a lot of government effort go into that. I don't think you'll ever get rid of social media, but we should make every attempt to make the young people more sophisticated in their use of it. But you, you've you've outlined an interesting uh, a possible uh, hazard there because I can foresee this the 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 sort of government made. Uh, module that these kids will have to do, and it'll be like, it'll be like, hey, kids, you know, do, do you know, are you being, are you being cyberbullied on the interwebs? Like, and it'll be, there'll be this, this, con- there's a constant disconnect by, for lack of a better term, this sort of the boomers who run, <laughs> who run the show, and and the kids who are, I, I know because we, we were there at the, literally at the beginning of this, and the like hearing older people talk about technology is so embarrassing. You know what I mean? Like you, you even saw it when, when Facebook was, was in front of the, the senators in America, the, the gerontocracy they've got in America. And basically they were, they were saying you kids are so hip with your hula hoops and your, and your lollipops. Like, like it was just, it was so embarrassing. So how, what, what, what possibly can we do thinking, I know this isn't necessarily, maybe necessarily your field, but let's just, let's just think about it. What could we do? I used to be involved in something called the Young and Well Cooperative Research Centre, which was set up by the Department of Innovation. And we had five years and $30 million to come up with some ideas around co-design and not in a patronising or condescending way, but by far and away the best products that we put together were the ones that we co-designed with young people. Uh, And I think... That's the only way to go, particularly in education. You're quite right. A lot of the material is patronising and condescending and the, the young people just look at it and walk away. So the really great example of that was the former government's attempts at trying to get the messages across about consent, which were just risible. And, and I'm still amazed that people actually thought that that was going to work. So we need some creativity um, and we need young people to tell us uh, the right ways to get some key messages across. Well, why doesn't anyone talk about how all the kids with a smartphone now have a 24-7 portal to the sex industry? When I was in high school in the 1990s, my friends and I were on a relentless hunt for any images of naked women or depictions of sex. If I had a smartphone in high school, I don't think I would have graduated. How can we be giving our kids such unfettered access to porn? Porn is now the lead, well, online porn is now the lead sex educator in Australia. Um, And my colleagues in the field say that most of them have seen violent, degrading sex by the age of nine years of age, which is just terrifying. I think this distorts their understanding of love, intimacy, consent, um, it, it's cartoon sex. There are two organisations or two people that I think have made a huge um, contribution to this. Melinda Tunkhead-Reist, 
who uh, talks about the porn industry non-stop in schools across Australia all the time, uh, and particularly the pernicious impact of online porn. And the other person um, is Marie Crabb, <clears throat> who's put together a really good resource, itstimewetalked.com.au, which is the best curriculum material to address this issue I've ever seen. Um, is it widespread? No. Is it in every school? No, but it should be. Absolutely. Yeah, it just seems such like such a no-brainer, you know what I mean, and that damage is being done, uh, you know, at, at such a rate and such a scale. Like, I, I, it, to me, uh, I'm so na- uh, naive about some of these problems because they seem so – like this seems to be to be built upon the idea that, that – um, some people want pornography for free like like the you, you should if if surely we should just paywall it <laughs> and go well if you want you got to pay for it it's a product anyway and but but there seems to be huge lobbies out there and 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 the lack of of interest or care from from parents and and educators on on a grand scale is is a little bit alarming don't you think i do but i don't think that we've invested in the well-being of our young people for a long time, and this is just a continual um, uh, problem that we've got in Australia, uh, it, it seems to me that Tony Blair said something once which I really liked, and that was that young people were 17% of the population but 100% of the future. I'm not sure that we're interested in investing in that future at the moment, which is a shame. Well, last year the Ministry of Education in China, they banned mobile phones in schools. Um, the authorities say there that they want to protect young people's eyesight, uh, improve their concentration and prevent internet addiction. They also cited concerns with gaming addiction. Uh, they were saying that was damaging mental health. So they in- implemented time limits. Under 18s are restricted to 90 minutes of gaming on, on weekdays and three hours on weekends and holidays. Uh, I think in France, there are similar restrictions on use of mobile phones in classrooms. And in the UK, several schools implement a, a ban on the use of mobile phones. The world seems to be waking up to the det- detrimental effects of technology on children. Do you think Australia is is lagging behind? De- definitely. Um, the previous Federal Minister of Education um, took my report to the Ministers of Education and Queensland and New South Wales, ironically, um, said, no, this is a decision that we're going to leave to uh, individual principles, which is the most massive cop-out and poor leadership and a failure to invest, I think, in young people's well-being. So I've been fairly unrelenting in my criticism of those ministers and those states and territories, and uh, I'd welcome your collective voices uh, in on that. Uh, we've, we've simply got to back this up with research now. We've got Victoria Tasmania and WA, who will be able to show within, I suspect, a reasonable period of time, the benefits of a ban from first bell to last in terms of lack of distraction, improved academic performance, a reduction in cyberbullying and increased socialisation. So we've got to use that evidence to strong arm, I think, those other states and territories that are just ignoring this issue. But is the lack of data the uh, the only block? Like, is that is that honestly that just seems so frustrating to me? Because if you're if you if you could even and since it's so popular to use anecdotal experience nowadays as the most important thing, why can't you just look at your own your own experience? Like, you know, for example, my, my when I turn the television on and my daughter looks at it, the life drains out of her. You know what I mean? We stop talking, we stop uh, engaging, and so I mean that's just t- one tiny little really old. And that's television. That's not even a mobile in my phone with people slagging me off on Twitter, which happens. Um, you're quite right. The lived experience of those schools who've had these bans in place in New South Wales and Victoria, in my opinion, should be enough. And in fact, many of those schools have done, have run surveys. And they might not be your double-blind control trial that, you know, universities would necessarily require. But to me, this is from the University of the Bleeding Obvious. Um, I'm desperate for teachers to stand up as a 
union and call for this, for principles to stand up and call for this. And yet I don't hear that. It doesn't seem to me to be a priority for them, which puzzles me given what you've said and we're obviously on the same tram. Mm. Well, if we step back a little bit and look at the bigger picture, are all of the problems we are seeing with technology just a symptom of parents who can no longer use the N-word? I, I, I've talked about what I call the vi- vitamin N deficiency in Australian parenting for a long time. And I think there are too many parents who want to be their child's best friend and they're hesitant to set limits and boundaries, hesitant to be the frontal cortex which is still developing in their child. And unless and until you reach the point where you get parents to be parents again, um, then I think this problem will just keep going on. Where do you think that comes from, this, this generation of parents? Why do they want to, to be best friends with, with their children? Um, I think that a lot of it's come from um, the popular media, which has um, demonised anything that smells vaguely of authoritarian parenting. I think that there are some definite downsides to authoritarian parenting, but my preferred is authoritative. And in getting rid of authoritarian, they've also got rid of authoritative. And in its place is this permissive parenting, or what I call concierge parenting, which is where parents literally are expected to sit at a little desk and act on every single request that their child makes of them, which I think will be the the death knell of this generation. I think that will be a disaster. But what an interesting, uh, we mentioned COVID at the beginning, what an interesting suite of ideas. So if you've got within your home, your device open, being your child's concierge and doing that, but then Look, the Andrews government had no problem, you know, telling you what what you needed to do to get things done. As in, you know, you got to stay here, you got to wear this thing, you got to do, you got to, you know, only go five kilometers. Well, take your pick, right? So, so we've got. So then your kids are getting two messages. They get at home. They're getting this idea. They're not getting from. They're learning that what only only the government can tell you what to do. And your parents, you know, I'm I'm just confused by this. It sounds like a very dangerous mix. And the government can shut down your uh, playgrounds and take off your basketball hoops too, don't forget, um, and with no sound medical evidence. Uh, look, I, I, I'm, I'm in a state of puzzlement. I have been um, very vocal for about 25 years on all of these issues, including parenting. Um, I've... I've written 17 books on the topic. I've now resorted to writing a book on grandparenting, which is what I'm doing now, um, in the hope that perhaps that uh, cohort, and there have never been more of them, uh, can step up to the plate and start taking some responsibility in helping their children parent their children. Um, but, yeah, the the idea of um, saying no, the idea of uh, consequences. It's been equated with discipline, which has been equated with smacking your children. Smacking children is massively ineffective, achieves nothing. But if you're going to ban smacking, you have to actually run a campaign for parents, which actually tells them what the alternative is. And they haven't done that either. Just while we're in this in this ballpark, do, do you think that... Uh and this is a divisive figure, obviously, but do you think that in what happens when you raise children like this uh, is that in the future that a, a certain uh, portion of them are going to turn to people like Jordan Peterson or figures like that whose book, when, I, when I've explained his book to um, someone and, I'll, and some of the older people I know, they go, what the hell, what's the point of this book? They go, this is everything that I, I know normally. And I say, yes, I know, but we don't know that because we were to- we were helicoptered and told that we were beautiful unicorns and snowflakes so that it takes this guy to say clean your room man you know like be nice to people like or he he lays out these basically um grandparent 
sort of uh, or older style education. Do you think there's some sort of connection there with with the way development works and what you what you uh, sort of need? Uh, I'm I'm not a great fan of of Jordan Peterson for a number of reasons, but I think that the idea of parents um, having an understanding that their child's brain is a work in progress, that it's got a hundred billion brain cells, a thousand trillion connections, and they're not wired up yet. And therefore you <clears throat> have to step in and you do need to set limits and boundaries and you do need particularly to negotiate with teenagers. And yes, there's some things that are not negotiable. The issue for me is on safety. So I'm, I'm really sick and tired of kids coming in to my office who, A, do nothing around the house, and I mean nothing, B, um, expect their parents to wait on them hand and foot and do absolutely nothing for society or for anyone else. Um, and I think that generation, and I refer to them as Prince Boofhead and Princess Beachface um, in, in earlier books, very um, kind of I, I attracted a lot of ire for that because people didn't like that. But the fact is that there are people who are psychological doormats for their children and that to me is not a good recipe to bring up worthwhile human beings who are going to make a contribution to society in the future. Well, I have a, just a tiny little case study, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it because a, a parent spoke to me recently. It was at a, at a, at a gym I was talking to them, and, that, and they mentioned that uh, they were having trouble getting their daughter, she's in year 11, um, up for school. And, that, and I was like, what, what are you talking about? They're like, oh, well, you know, after COVID sort of ruined the routine, but she's up n- at night like doing her work or something or, you know, she's a good student. She just We just can't get up for school. So we've tried – you know, confronting her about it. But, you know, now we just, anyway, it's 10 o'clock and I'm sure she'll be at school now. They've just sort of throw their hands up in the air. And I, I was so confused at this. What what, what what would your advice be to this this baffling com- uh, situation? How old's the kid? Uh, year 11. Uh, it's always tricky in the last two years of school because, of course, the young people have been infused with the fact that they have rights and what is often not articulated is that alongside those rights sit some responsibilities and one of those responsibilities is to look after your well-being and the building blocks of well-being for any year 11 student is sleep diet and exercise and if you don't have those things that's going to compromise your capacity to be a good learner and therefore you need to step up into the up, up to the plate and that means not having technology in your bedrooms late at night, going to bed at a reasonable hour and getting up, particularly if your parents are paying for you to go to some, you know, $30,000 a year private school. Uh, that, that just to me is baffling. There are some psychological conditions that exist um, I don't know if you know this, but 40% of teenagers are in fact what we call owls and they have melatonin that secretes much later at night. So in fairness to them, they do find it more difficult to go to sleep late at night. And I've argued for a long time to schools um, that they should be starting their year 11 and year 12 uh, classes at 10 o'clock to account for that. Um but very few schools have the capacity or interest in changing sleep times. Uh, it particularly gets terrible around about um, daylight saving time, particularly when you go the clocks go forward. But look, basic parenting is to have rules to enforce them, and um, in the absence of any psychological uh, problem, sometimes you're going to have to risk being unpopular. And I, I don't care. You mentioned sleep there. How prevalent is uh, devices in the bedroom and, and, and those devices keeping kids up later than they should be? I don't know that there's any, been any um, proper study done on how prevalent that is. I do know that the Australian Sleep Foundation are now saying that up to half young people um, in adolescence 
uh, sleep deprived and that we need to address this issue. For me, as someone who's a critical friend of schools, I'd be putting a lot more emphasis on sleep hygiene much earlier on. I'd be bringing people in. I'd be teaching them the benefits and the disadvantages um, of benefits of getting enough sleep and disadvantages of not getting enough sleep. I think that's a major gap in the curriculum. Well, you mentioned safety uh, just a minute ago. Uh, how bad is cyberbullying in schools today? The difficulty, again, is definitional. So I sat on the Alana and Madeline Foundation board for a long time and chaired their cyber safety committee. And if you do a survey and you ask kids, are you being bullied or are you being cyber bullied? It all comes down to definitions. So the federal government created a definition of bullying and that using that definition, about one in four to one in five young people said that they were being uh, bullied either on or offline on a regular basis. As a psychologist, I look at the impact of that on young people in terms of suicide, um, in terms of suicidal ideation, depression, anxiety, um, and school refusal. And it's a major component of all of those. Do you think it might be hard to to uh, gauge this, uh, but do you think uh, bullying is worse now because of the smartphone? I think that the prevalence of cyberbullying has definitely increased with the number of devices that young people have access to. There's clear research to show that. Um, but because we're not doing enough um, on basic digital uh, literacy, di digital citizenship, that sort of stuff, because kids don't have to sit any um, test to be able to bring a phone to school or even get one. Uh, I think it's um, the digital wild west out there. But you mentioned about definitions. Uh, we spoke to Nick Haslam uh, not too long ago about uh, concept creep, and and that was absolutely fascinating. He's a lot more. He's a lot like you're a very cool headed guy, and we need that because uh, we're hotheads. And um, so, how how do we find the the balance between, you know, safeguarding or protecting kids or, or teaching about cyberbullying, and you know, making sure that they're resilient in what you know in that way that Jonathan Haidt talks about in, in in that they are grounded in in uh the wisdom of the ancients of of turning the other cheek of of putting leather on your feet instead of trying to cover the world with with uh, with leather you know what I mean all these stuff and how do we find that balance I think that we need to strive to make our young people resilient and the definition of resilience that I use is the capacity to face to overcome to be transformed and strengthened by adversity. So you're never going to shield kids from adversity, and I don't think you should, but I think we need to give uh, look at the literature and say, okay, what are the things that build resilient young people? And we know that there are five. There's the presence of a charismatic adult, this grandparent figure that I'm talking about, um, the, someone who will um, give you a sense of feeling safe and valued and listened to will love you, but also will tell you when um, you're full of it. So I think that's an important got, uh, first step. The second is I think we've got to give kids social and emotional competencies, which I think technology has robbed them of. So things like anger management, problem solving, conflict resolution, problem solving, decision-making, that we know from the Mission Australia study year after year after year, the number one problem for 16 to 20-year-olds in Australia is I don't have the capacity to cope So uh, cope with stress. So for God's sake, let's give them that capacity. The third issue for me is I'm going to teach them about self-talk and that if you can't change something, you can change the way you think about it. And instead of catastrophizing all the time, see life as it is, but focus on the good bits. Those are the little ideas that I have. Um, the fourth thing is islands of competence. So the idea of when kids are doing one thing, they can't be doing another. So where are the pushes on art, music, dance, drama, sport? Um, New South Wales report massive declines as a result of the current looming recession in kids' participation in sport. 
that's going to be catastrophic in terms of physical health and psychological well-being. And the last thing is kind of strange, but it's a, a sense of meaning, purpose and belonging, a sense of uh, being part of something that's bigger than themselves. So that's kind of like my recipe book for where we need to go with young people in the future. I hope it makes some sense. Sounds like Dead Poet Society. <laughs> well, I, I liked Keating as a, as a teacher. I thought it was good. Well, I've always wanted to stand on that. We all want to stand on the desks and say, Captain, my captain. But we're so uh, uh, often not given that opportunity considering the calibre out there, I think, sometimes. I think you'd probably be arrested. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. Just drilling down into one thing you said there. I'm, do you think it would be worth teaching a module? I think you've already mentioned this, but but more specifically, teaching kids you know, it, basically cognitive behavioral therapy. So we, so we, so CBT, like we, we actually have a module where we say, okay, you, this is black and white thinking. This is what, this is what, um, uh, you know, yeah. Catastrophizing, uh, feels like this is, you know, and getting them to, because that kind of mind training, which has been around for thousands of years, like, you know what I mean? Like, like if you read basic Dharma, this is all in the Dharma. So it's embarrassing that it's been taken up now, like a brand new thing. So it's been around forever. And yet we instead, we don't do that. And, and I feel like um, that kids could really, they could use this in, in almost every facet of their life. Well, the irony is that um, I've been calling for that for a long time and the irony is that there's an app called uh, mood kit which actually teaches kids the basics of cognitive behavioral therapy and despite my very firm stance on mobile phones in schools i'm also an advocate within my profession for the use of strategic use of these apps to teach some of these principles um, not just a cognitive behavioral therapy but ACT, DBT, um, relaxation, a whole range, mindfulness, a whole range of things which are ironically on their phone and instantly available irrespective of their, their geography or their financial situation. What were those acronyms, those ACT and the other one? So ACT is Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, a brilliant guy called Russ Harris. You should have him on your podcast. He's amazing. Um, and DBT is dialectical behavioral therapy, which is um, a, a form of therapy from the United States, dreamt up by a woman called Marsha Lynham. Uh, they're all very useful forms of therapy that psychologists use for kids. Well, you, out, you outlined some different uh, models in terms of restricting the use of mobile phones. Would you mind taking us through some of the different models uh, in terms of, of, of how this could work? Yeah, I've rethought them since I wrote that uh, piece. Um, and uh, ostensibly, I'm now, I've, I've matured or evolved in my thinking. And the schools that have got a blanket ban from nine till, or first bell to last, including recess and at lunchtime, is my preferred model. Prior to that, we looked at models where kids, for example, could go to their lockers for five minutes at lunchtime and just check to see if there were messages. Um, there were particular concessions made for students in the older years. Um, but I've got rid of that now uh, on the basis of my discussions with principals um, like, for example, Pitsa Binion at McKinnon um, Secondary, which is a, a perfect example of what we're talking about today where she just banned it and the result was un unbelievable in terms of the change within the school to the point where the kids themselves initially some of which were, who were hesitant are now saying to me when I go there this is the best thing that's ever happened and what about outside of school? Like, do you have any advice or maybe tactics for parents who are struggling with mobile phone usage, uh, you know, outside of school hours? If you've got little children, and I think both of you have, I'm, get, I'm getting that feeling, I'd be sticking to the um, American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines on screen time. I think they are the ones to follow. And they really um, focus on the content co-watching and to make sure that the act of going on 
a screen does not interfere with the developmental tasks. So we need to sleep, we need to eat, we need to exercise, we need to have face-to-face time with our, our friends. And once all of that is done, then we can look at screens and we look at the content of what it is that they watch. But that's my recommendation to people watching this. Uh, you, obviously, there's other models because th- there'd be a concern that, oh, you know, there are some sc- – obviously, th- schools have different resources, different populations, and, oh, our, our students need phones for this reason. They don't want to fall behind. It could be a class thing or whatever. So uh, I'm, I'm just wondering <laughs> – at the end of the day, it's sort of those sorts of caveats sort of deep six the whole thing because the moment you say, "Oh well, do it or do it or don't," it's sort of like we're gonna. Don't, aren't you concerned that we're going to create this this sort of two two tiered system where the the private schools, obvi- like if like the kid that goes to private school, and the, the obviously who's the, the 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 parents would just be like, "Yeah, just ban it or whatever," and then then you've got these these other kids who. Are sort of like it's sort of like living in a, the equivalent of living in a food desert. You know what I mean? Like they're having they're just given the phones. Oh yeah, because we don't care about them as much. You know what I mean? I agree. Um, th- another complication is um, the equity issues. Some of the um, schools that I interviewed for the New South Wales report said, um, "Look, we're in such a desperately poor area." We couldn't give a stuff whether the kids have their phone with them or not. What we're concerned about is the kid actually coming to school. Mm. Um, and I, I get that. I get that. Well, maybe to put a finer point on it, thinking in terms of the future, we, we spoke to Catherine Burblesing, a UK educator, uh, recently. Um, and uh, another divisive figure, I should, I should say. <laughs> uh, but she puts it plainly to her students. Her mantra uh, that accompanies her school's strict mobile ban is don't break your brain. And I feel that this direct language describes the effect of social media and its and Google's al- algorithms. And so in the future, do you think that I've often thought this, and I want to know what you think, do you think that there'll be a class divide in the future in terms of who has broken their brain and who has not, so to speak? I think we're headed in that direction. Um, you only have to look at the private schools in my area, and I live in a suburb which has more private schools per kilometre than anywhere else on earth. And I can promise you um, that they're, they're going to have a generation of students who have actually grown up with this phone ban um, and it's going to advantage them. And I think the ones that haven't will be disadvantaged significantly. Yeah. Well, it's it just feels like it's an issue that... Again, it seems like such a no-brainer, and, and we've got labour in now. And I just thought that this is the t- this is the sort of thing that if you care about the disadvantage and you care about uh, the working class, which is something that you know uh, the Labour Party used to care about, then maybe this is the kind of thinking that we need to be doing. You need to be saying, "Well, they does it." Well, well, people, because we spoke to another educator from America, and his whole thing about working in, in charter schools and whatnot was that that. Um, disadvantaged kids, they deserve the same education that that um, uh, advantaged kids have. So that means that means you know just because someone's in a disadvantaged situation doesn't mean you sh- you should softball them. That that's the worst kind of thing. Yeah, no, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, I think we are at risk of having an educational apartheid system all over again, um, and the, it strikes me as. Leadership from people who have a priority in the well-being of young people. It's interesting, the New South Wales Labor government, um, a Labor opposition rather, have recently come out and said, yep, we are going to adopt Michael Cargreek's strategy of a complete ban um, on mobile phones from first bell to last. And that was because a journalist and I got together and we decided to resurrect this issue on a Sunday morning in the Sunday papers and the debate went on and then the policymakers within Labor acted. So I think media advocacy, intelligent discussions and reasoned arguments are where we need to go. Um, But 
I'll keep going till I have no more breath left in me. I promise you that, John. <laughs> are you are you optimistic though? Are you optimistic that uh, that governments and organisations are going to adopt some of these suggestions and uh, sort of push things in a positive direction? I, I'm I'm buoyed by the actions of the Labor opposition in New South Wales. I think they will perhaps be copying what James Molino did in Victoria and I'm hoping that it'll spread um, as a result of that. So, yep, I'm a little bit hopeful, got to be honest. You know, we, we are sort of coming to our, our, our descent now, but I, I feel like what, what, can, what can we do practically? You've already outlined a few things there. What can, what can parents do? What can teachers do? What can we do, practically speaking, to, to, to push this barrow? Um, I, I'm a, an old political lobbyist, so I'd want you to write letters to the paper, still the most read part of any newspaper. I'd want you to uh, write to your local MP, to the Federal Minister of Education. I'd want you to um, hop on, on Talkback Radio and make your views known, particularly if you're an educator, because that gives you, I think, a huge amount of credibility you should have say in this debate because your business is in educating uh, young people and preparing them for the future. And we're not going to be able to do that if you, if we continue to break their brains. And I love that um, and steal their focus. Well, we do. We do have a final question that we ask all our guests, and that is, we'd like to know what you're reading right now. I'm reading. I'm reading everything I can get hold of on research, peer-reviewed research, on the effect of grandparenting on grandchildren. When I'm not doing that, I've just finished Louis Thoreau's um, book on his experiences during the lockdown. Don't know if you've read it. No. No. Um, looking through, through. Uh, the it's brilliant. It's very funny. Oh, I feel like we, you know, we, we we had specific topics we wanted to cover today, so we couldn't really pop the hood on COVID. But uh, I feel like there's a lot we could talk about there. Sure, the, you, you, know? you bet. So, uh, and we also want to talk to you about, um, uh, uh, you know, boys and raising boys and all that sort of all that sort of jazz at, at another point, perhaps. I'd be delighted. Mm, wonderful well thanks for being so generous with your time uh michael and so where can people find you and you and your work uh out there oh just google michael Cargreg and uh you go straight to my website and um everything's on there i can verify that i went to google <laughs> and that's what i did i typed in his name and then i emailed michael and here he is yes. so there you go and and we discovered a cv that's uh probably longer than you're ever going to see. That CV ever is see. bonkers. Can I just say, Ricky, if you live long enough, that'll happen to you. Well, I can, o well, I can only I've just got to go out and create canteen, yes. you know, like when I'm young. <laughs> you know, just do that and all the other stuff, yes. you know. Well, that's anyway. very kind. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience.